The Sermon on the Mount, remember, as we kind of land the plane tonight as we finish this, uh, better read as one continuous sermon, one body of language. You know, we get in trouble when we pick things out of it, like the phrase tonight, chapter 1, judge uh, not lest you be judged. You know, people pick that out and, and we draw wrong conclusions. So we want to look at it in its totality because it really runs this whole level of what Jesus is trying to teach us. And, and really he's answering the question, you know, what is the good life? Who is the good person? And that's why it begins with, you know, blessed are they that are poor in spirit. There's a quality of spirit. And then they hunger and thirst after righteousness. And, and then it keeps going on to the pure in heart and really begins to unfold true versus false spirituality. And true spirituality is of the heart. And this is why people are following Jesus. You have to remember this. Man had not heard from God for 400 years since Malachi the prophet. There has been silence from heaven. And there has been worship in the temple, and there were scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and religious rulers and temple worship and synagogue worship, but there had been no fresh manna from heaven for 400 years. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes around. And whatever John was preaching, think about this. He wasn't going to the people. They were coming to him. They were going out beyond the Jordan because there was something new and there was something fresh. And now Jesus is here, and it says here that he's teaching them with great authority. It's almost like he had been there, like the curtain had been taken back and he had seen to the other side, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, and he was teaching people about things that mattered to them. When he ends the Sermon on the Mount, he said, look, here's the way it goes. You can either build your house on the rock or you can build your house on sand. And the storms of life are going to come. When the storms come, we'll see which house was built on the rock, which house was built on sand. And, and it meant a lot to them because everyone's building a life. We're all building a life. We're building one way or another. And Jesus taught them about things that mattered. He talked about life. He talked about marriage. He talked about things that were real. He talked about anger and lust. He talked about our Father in heaven. He talked about those things that were eternal. So the Sermon on the Mount has endured for a long time because Jesus was teaching people things that mattered and the things that were eternal. And we're going to begin tonight in chapter 7, but I want to just back up a few verses because I skated over this last week and it kind of stuck in my mind where Jesus was talking about anxiety and worry, right? And we know all the verses, don't worry about your life, what you're going to put on your body, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. You know, we're, we're worthy of more than that. God clothes the lily of the fields and he feeds the sparrows and, you know, we can't add to our stature by worry. But in verse 30, it says, now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how will he not clothe you much more? And look at this phrase, O ye of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek, those people that aren't living by faith, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, you know, the things that you need, will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. We talked a lot about this. Tomorrow has enough worry. It's sufficient is the day for its own trouble. I kind of got stuck on this phrase, ye of little faith. And it's not the first time Jesus says it. It's not the last time. In fact, he says it quite often 
to people he's investing in, people like you and me. And predominantly to the disciples, every time he says it, it's when they're around the Sea of Galilee, which is a place where they worked and they understood. It was their greatest competency. You know, they're in the boat. He's not with them. There's a storm. They think they're going to die. Jesus comes along. Peace be still. He calms the sea. And he says, why did you worry ye of little faith? Then there's that time where there's a storm raging again. They see him walking on the sea. He calms the storm. Peter says, I want to do that too, Lord. Jesus says, well, come out of the boat. And Peter begins to walk on water like Jesus. And then we know what happens. He gets his eyes off Jesus and he starts to drown. And Jesus said, ye of little faith. And so I think, well, if Peter had more faith, could he have walked on water all the time? You know, is, is it little faith, medium faith, big faith? How, how does all this work? Well, I know this. The disciples would be men of tremendous faith after the resurrection. And they would do tremendous things, things beyond what they could have ever dreamed of. And I've seen big faith. Uh, this past December, I was at the Creation Museum in Kentucky and had lunch with Ken Ham, the founder. And Ken Ham's an amazing man. He's written all these books. And yet you walk in this Creation Museum and you think, oh my gosh, how did he do this? There's this museum that is like to a Disney level of quality showing forth the creation of God. And then 45 minutes away is the, the Ark Museum where they built a life-size, some of you have seen this or Google it, they built a life-size Noah's Ark. Four levels with decks and animals and restaurants and trams and again, to Disney quality. And they had a computer there uh, in the back room they had 16,000 visitors on a Tuesday in December, which I thought was pretty impressive. I said, what's it look like here in the summer? They're like 65,000 people a day. Like, how'd they do this? This is, in, in a lifetime, this is great faith. Uh, my youngest daughter was considering Liberty University, if you've ever been there. And so I had never been there. A lot of the Kids in our youth group have gone there, so we went to college for a weekend, and I get down there, and I was blown away. And there's a little museum there where they show you Thomas uh, Road Baptist Church, this little church. And then finally, they, they build a couple you know, buildings, and today there's a medical school, and there's like a Barnes & Noble. They actually have a mountain where they put a fake snow up there, and kids can ski on, and I'm looking around like, how did Jerry Falwell do this? And I know the answer. He has great faith. And so, you know, I don't have great faith. I don't think I have little faith. But my prayer is, Lord, give me increasing faith. And I think that's, that's the answer. Because, look, this is tied to the Gentiles. You know, this idea of anxiety and, 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 and worrying about things, this is what people that have no faith do. Jesus said, why are you falling into that camp? You should be those of who faith is increasing. Now, there's only one way for faith to increase. There has to be those things in our life where we need faith muscles for. See, the disciples on the Sea of Galilee had competency until storms came. So when I look at this, I think, I think the challenge of Jesus, there should always be those things in our lives where we need faith. If we already have competency, we don't need faith. So the encouragement here is that we should grow in faith. Maybe if you have little faith, you get medium faith. Medium faith, big faith. But we all need faith. 
We all need to seek the kingdom and its righteousness, and all the other things will be added to us. We've just lived through the greatest prosperity that any generation has ever seen. The last 11 years, the greatest uptick in prosperity. So you're going to prosper. I'm not going to say you don't need God, but I'll tell you this, your neighbors have done quite well. You know, their IRAs, their 401ks are up 30%, 60%. Let those things worry about themselves. But there should be those things in your life where you need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, Jesus seemingly switches gears here, chapter 7, verse 1, when he says, Judge not that you not be judged, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, we've just talked for a chapter about our relationship with God, right? When you pray, when you fast, when you give. This idea of drawing close to God, that when we draw near to him, when we pray that prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, there's that drawing near to God, understanding he's our Father, and he changes us from the inside out. There's a quality of spirit. The problem, however, is that Jesus said the whole of the commandments hinged on two things. Don't you wish it was one? Love God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength. That's pretty easy. And then love your neighbor as yourself. There's always a catch, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So when people say, oh, I love God, I'm thinking, yeah, uh, God's pretty easy to love the last time I checked. He gave us the cattle on a thousand hills. He gave us life and breath, and he answers our prayers. And, you know, who wouldn't get along with Jesus, right? He's, he's never sinned. You know, he's, he's perfect. He's the word of God. He's the lamb of God, right? He's gentle and meek and all those things. It's the other side of the coin that we have trouble with, loving our neighbor as ourself. And, and our neighbor is those who are in the faith and those outside the faith, and Jesus is going to bring that out. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, that in a community, and that's what we are, we're the new community. We are those who God has given a new heart and a new mind. We live in this wonderful thing called community. However, Jesus said, within all communities, even those who are blood-bought and know Jesus and read the scriptures, there will be, you ready for this, conflict. There will be conflict. I wrote this down because I want to say it the way I really believe it. Conflict is evidence of a relationship. Unresolved conflict is a sign of no relationship. I'm going to say that again. Conflict is evidence that you're actually in a relationship. So uh, we're going to teach our pre-marriage class in March. And I get the first session. And I talk about difficult adjustments in marriage. Now, you older people will laugh. And younger people, this is what you have coming uh, up to you. But difficult adjustments. Nobody thinks about this when they're in love. And I talk about, hey, there's going to be difficult adjustments. They're, they're difficult because you have to adjust. And here's the idea. You know, the guy was raised by a set of parents. The girl was raised by a set of parents. The, those parents were imperfect. So we have two imperfect sets of parents who have raised imperfect children and we think everything's going to be bliss, right? And the answer is no, there's going to be difficult adjustments. 
So one of the difficult adjustments is marriage now becomes daily. There's physical adjustments, right? So now when you go out, the person isn't perfectly made up with makeup and their best dress. You're going to see them morning, noon, and night. You're going to see them when they're sick and have the flu and throwing up, right? It's this daily adjustment. How do you spend money? How do you save money? So my wife and I, my, my wife comes from kind of the upbringing. And, and by the way, neither one's right or wrong. So my wife thinks, okay, if we need a coffee table, go out and buy it, right? Whatever amount of money we can afford, like go to Kmart, let's get a coffee table. Now, I was raised another way. I was raised, let's do without the coffee table. Let's save up our money and maybe not Ethan Allen, but maybe Ray Moore and Flanagan, right? Now, that's a difficult adjustment. There's two ideas, two schools of thought. No one's right, no one's wrong, but there's a conflict. How does conflict get resolved? Communication, which is the second week of our marriage curriculum. You resolve conflict through conversation. So there's conflict in every, in, in, in every community, in every, in every school, in every business. There's always going to be conflict. It's not only marriage. It's everywhere we go. And, and in a healthy relationship, there's conflict. It's, it's, is there enough health to solve the conflict? Healthy communities solve their conflicts. And Jesus said the first part of solving conflict is judge not lest you be judged. Now, let's eradicate some stinking thinking, okay? Judge not does not mean uh, like que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future is not ours to see, que sera. Like, like, I'm okay, you're okay, Rodney King, can't we just all get along? That, that's not what we're talking about here. Because later, Jesus is going to talk about false prophets, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. There's discernment. That's a spiritual gift. So, so there can't be an idea that there's no judgment here. There, there's got to be something deeper going on. And, and I think Jesus brings it out when he says, uh, with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. And then he gives us an example, verse 3. Do not look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own. I read one time that Jesus wept, so he was like us, but he never laughed. Now, I don't find anywhere in Scripture where Jesus laughed. I have to believe before he went into the ministry, he probably laughed, right? But I got I to gotta think he's being humorous here. Like, you can see the beam, the plank in your brother's eye, but this little speck, like a little eyelash in your eye, you can't see. See, see there's a proclivity here. Anybody on to it? Sin looks so bad on other people, doesn't it? You turn on the TV, and you look at other people, and they're sinning, and it looks so horrific. Or even if you see someone who maybe is in the church, uh, uh, yelling at their child. And you're like, how could anybody do that? It looks so horrible. So you realize, oh my gosh, how many times have I done that? And so there's this sense that, yes, there's judgment, but it's the measure, okay? There's the measure. 
So what's the measure you want to be judged on? You know what my measure is? I want to be judged on grace and mercy. So I need to strive for that to be my type of judgment. Uh, here's the judgment that I would like to receive. I won't tell you the chapter because you'll know what it is. Love suffers long and is kind. That's how I want people to judge me. I want them to suffer long. <laughs> and I want them to be kind. I want the benefit of the doubt. I want them to examine the facts. I want them to do their due diligence. I want them to walk in my shoes. I want them to look at the totality of what's going on. I want them to look at the inward, not the outward. I want them to look at motive, not outward things. I don't want them to envy, parade themselves, puff themselves up. I don't want it to be rude, seek its own, not provoked, think no evil, does not rejoice in my iniquity, but in truth. I want them to bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure things, because love never fails. And, you know, I think what Jesus is saying here is that, that if that if love is our motive, community can endure. If love's not our motive, community's going to break down. And, and, and you've all seen that. And you know what it feels like. And so, so this is the measure, I think. I think Paul picked up on this. He, he writes this later. He says, brothers, if you see someone overtaken in a sin, you who are spiritual, watch this, don't criticize them. Don't condemn them. You know, there's a ministry of condemnation in the church. It's not good. Some people, criticism is like their number one spiritual gift, right? And, and, and what Paul's saying is, you, if you're really spiritual, right? If God has given you this inside track that something's wrong, if you're really spiritual, listen to what he says. Restore them and do it in a lowly spiritual manner considering yourself, right? That's what Jesus said. Don't look at the beam in someone else's eye. Don't consider yourself. Um, feeling the weight of others and fulfilling the words of Christ. Like this, like almost a brokenness. So I'll give you an example. So the hygienist that I go to, uh, this girl is about as thorough as you can believe. Um, the first time I went to her, I thought I will never go to her again. She puts this mask on now. She looks like a miner or an astronaut. And she starts grinding and grinding and grinding. And, and you know, now that years have gone by, I actually look forward to it. It's like this sadomasochism I look forward to. And she's tearing and grinding. And, and I actually enjoy it now because my teeth are just, like, they're amazing. And I know what she's doing is helping me. Here's what she always says at the end. Bob, you need to floss. You're not flossing. You're bleeding all over the place. You need to floss. Now, here's what I know. She's not condemning me. Uh, she's, she has my best interest. I know she loves clean teeth and oral hygiene, right? That's why she's doing it. She has my 
best intention at hand. And here's the beautiful thing. She can see what I can't see. She can see what I can't see. We all need feedback, right? We all need a community. You know, the Bible says we have this perfect law of liberty. We're like a man looking in a mirror. The tragedy is, James says, some people look in the mirror, they get no feedback. That's a problem. In fact, some people look in the mirror and they see other people, not themselves. The Bible study where you nudge, man, that was for somebody else, man. So we have the perfect law of liberty, and God doesn't condemn us, right? Now, how many times have you read the Bible, and you're reading, and God's speaking to you, you're like, oh my gosh, Lord, I've, I've been so neglectful in this area, and I've treated people wrong, and a righteous man falls seven times a day, and you confess before God, that's a good thing, that's, that's a spirit of restoration, not condemnation. But, but then there is the growth that can only come in community. The growth that can only come when someone can see my blind spots and the things I can't see. And again, you know, some of the things I wrote down here is, you know, this has to be done in a community where I know, you know, love is present and people really care about me. You know, somebody who doesn't know me from Adam who's going to try and come and correct me probably isn't going to work. But someone who has great buy-in and, and, and who's a part of my life, then I think it can work and it should work and we all do this. So we have to be careful in the measure that we use. We've all failed at this. I failed at it. You failed at it. But if we were to remember, you know, uh, the measure, it's the measure. And, of course, God's kindness towards us and a brokenness that we really want to see someone restored or, or brought to a place. You, you know, where this goes awry, and I think what Jesus is tracking towards is self righteousness these are the pharisees the scribes it usually happens like this people get into a world a club a ministry where you know they have certain doctrines they have certain ways you should live certain ways things should work and then everybody's judged against that standard and we've all been there it's legalism it doesn't work Christian schools are wonderful things. They, they all probably started with this wonderful idea. And then, you know, now you have an institution and you need rules. And so, you know, I know I had three girls. And the argument of the year was always, how high is the skirt? Right? And, and, and listen, I know you need rules. But there's this funny story where there was this one teacher who really got on my daughter and her friend about the length of their dress to the point of measuring, right, with the ruler and such. So one day, you know, uh, the teacher comes along and says, you know, you too, your skirts are too high, and they had to kneel down. They had to kneel down, and she took the ruler, and she knelt down with them, and she said, isn't this great we're all kneeling here? Like, we're repenting before God? And I'm like, how did this, ev how does that ever get into a heart, is the idea. So, so there is a righteous judgment, but it's not of condemnation. And again, it's the measure. And this ridiculous, ridiculous, you know, look at the speck in your own eye before you can judge the beam in your, notice, your brother's eye. That's going to be important in a few minutes. Hypocrite, first remove, verse 5, the plank from your own eye, then you will see clearly, see, so when you're, when you're doing introspective work, you can see clearly, you can actually be a benefit to your brother's eye. 
Now, verse 6 has troubled me for a long time. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and they turn and rend you in pieces. And I never understood what Jesus was saying here, and I think I have a greater grasp on it now. Now, we've all used this line, don't cast your pearls before swine. Probably we're all trained to think it meant like, you know, when you go out in the world and you're dealing with unbelievers, don't tell them about the end of the world, don't tell them about deep biblical truths, just tell them about the gospel, because they're dogs and they're swine. And I was taught that, and in the back of my mind I thought, that is the farthest thing from anything Jesus ever taught that I've ever read in the Bible. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How could they be pigs and dogs? And then finally it dawned on me. If I went up to a pig and gave it pearls, what do you think it would do with them? Try to eat it, right? Pig's not going to take the pearls, put it around his neck and say, wow, I look really good. If I gave a dog my Bible, it's probably going to rip the Bible like a toy or try and eat it. And once it realizes it's not food, it's probably going to come and attack me for giving it something like that. Here's what Jesus is saying. Judging a brother in the kingdom in the wrong spirit is never going to restore community. Judging people in the world who have no capacity to live for God is going to make them turn on you and destroy you verbally, maybe physically. So you can't walk in a bar, tell people you're a bunch of heathens, this is the way you should be living, and think anybody's going to listen to you. So what Jesus is saying here is, we don't even take the spirit of condemnation into the world. Why? Because... Jesus was our model, and it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And people are, you know, watching us way earlier than ever going to listen to us. And so this idea that, you know, we're going to legislate morality or, or somehow get people to live to a, to a standard has backfired. And it's backfired in history, and it's backfired in politics, and it's backfired in the church, And I think what it's saying here, I think what Jesus is saying is if we continue with the thought here, is, is that yes, you can judge someone to be outside the kingdom, right? That's, that's within our bounds, but you can never force them into the kingdom. Ask and it will be given to you. You can actually ask God for wisdom on the people that you're trying to win the Christ, the people that you're in conflict with. And it's keep asking, by the way. Keep seeking, keep knocking, God will answer, God wants to be sought. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Or what man is there among you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, here's that measure again, do also to them, for this is the law 
And this is the prophets. This is not salvation. We, we don't keep asking God and knocking on the door. You know, we're not looking for a needle in a haystack to find God in salvation. It's all about our relationship with God coming into our relationship with man. And it ends here with what we always call the golden rule that you should treat others the way you want to be treated. I share with uh, the men on the men's retreat that when I was on sabbatical for two months, I, I realized that this scarcity mentality had crept into my spirit. That for all my life, I had been filled with optimism and faith, and somehow the, this, this idea of breaking even or, you know, whatever the scarcity mentality was, I, I realized, and it kind of lifted like a fog. And one of the first things God began to dealt, deal with me was that it, that it was in small things that I would have to see him again, almost like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. And one of the areas was, uh, I was in a lot of hotel rooms, and they would leave an envelope for a tip. And God reminded me that everyone in my family uh, were in jobs, and I, w- I was in jobs early, you know, as a teenager and such, where we relied on tips. And uh, so I would kind of look at that tip envelope, and I would go through the, you know, oh, wait a second, I pay for the hotel room, and the maid gets paid and all that. And so I would put a five in the tip envelope. And then I felt like God said, how about a 20? And then, you know, you wrestle with God, and you keep going back and forth. And, and, and all of a sudden, I began to once again see God involved in areas of blessing and me being a conduit of blessing. And so, again, what's your measure? What's your measure? Is it generosity? Is it condemnation? What, what is the measure you want coming back to you? Because this is a boomerang, guys. You know, whatever you're sending out is the way it's going to come back. And so, you know, it's just a, a wonderful chance for us to kind of recalibrate how we do community. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Enter by the narrow gate. Talked about this on Sunday. We are all born spiritually blind. We are all born on the wide road. You don't have to enter the, the, the wide road. You're already on it, right? The wide road is wide, it's permissive. You're already on it. Listen to this it's all inclusive. Yeah? Some of you go on those all inclusive trips, right? That means everything's there. You like to swim, snorkel, ride horses, golf. You, know, you can do it all, right? So the wide road's all inclusive, right? All roads lead to God. And, you know, you could borrow from a little of Hinduism and a little of Christianity and a little of this. and a little, It's kind of like iPod religion, right? Are iPods still around? And we moved on. They're streaming now, right? I don't even think they exist. So, so you pick out a little bit of everything, and, and everything goes on that road. But there comes a time in our life, no matter what we were born into, where we choose our faith. And when Jesus says the road is narrow, listen, this isn't what he's saying. He's not saying that, that it's so hard. The Christian life is so hard. You've got to be so holy, so pure. Um, 
so in touch with God that you're barely going to squeeze through this narrow door, right? It's only narrow in that there's one way. That's why it's narrow. The wide road has all these ways. It's only narrow in that, that there's one way. And listen, there can only be one way. If God is God and we have a sin problem and God justified and paid for our sin, then there can only be one gate. So if I'm flying to Miami tomorrow on American Airlines at 9 o'clock, there is one gate. And I have to enter into that jetway and get on that plane, or I ain't going to Miami. I'm going to San Diego or Budapest or wherever I go. There's one way. And so Jesus says here, enter through that one way. Enter through the narrow gate. There's a wide path, very wide. It's a self-indulgent path. It's an all-inclusive path. The narrow gate has one requirement, repentance. That's all there is. The narrow gate has one requirement. The thief on the cross never gave in an offering, was never baptized, never did a charitable deed. Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. Repentance is the end. We all come in the same way. We all have the same ticket. We're all going through the same gate. And then Jesus said, few find it, which people think, okay, here we go. Needle in a haystack. You know, I was born in India, and out of all these religions, i got to find Jesus. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying few find it. It doesn't say there's few rooms there. Jesus didn't say, behold, if I leave, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house there are many mansions. By the way, there's only 13 of them. So it's like a lottery system if you can get in. It's really tight. No, the kingdom is expansive. But few, when they come to the crossroads, choose that gate. Very few. Now, it's few in comparison to all who ever lived. I want to tell you this. Revelation 4 says when we're in heaven and we stand around the throne of God, John said there was a number that he couldn't number. There were there were thousands upon thousands, and that's biblical language for saying it was innumerable. It's uncountable, okay? So our company is large through history. We are a big tribe. But in comparison to all who ever lived, Jesus said, and this is very unfortunate, very few ever, ever choose that path. It's not, it's not that they find it. It's they, it's they ever choose to take that path. Now, verse 15, he continues this theme, beware of false prophets. They're the ones on the wide road. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. I don't know if you know this, but the New Testament, after the Gospels and Acts, and a little bit of Romans, Almost a third of everything you read in the New Testament has to do with false teachers and false doctrine. And, and the first question is, why? And the answer is money, power, control. You know, this is how people have been controlled through the ages, right? Money and power. Think of all the structures, even within 
the subculture of Christianity, right? People that have been judged and everything Jesus is talking about here have been controlled through religion. And because of that, there are sheep that are led astray by false prophets, by false teachers. Uh, Paul, in the book of Acts, as he is about to leave Ephesus, calls for the leaders at Miletus. And when he calls for the elders there, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen to what he says. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember, for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Wow. This is in the first 40, 50 years of the church. We're 2,000 years later. We can look back on history. This is always going to be a part of the kingdom. Jesus said the kingdom of God was like a mustard seed. It had abnormal growth, and the fowls of the air came and rested there. Why? Money, power, control. False prophets, some of them are self-deceived. Most of them are self-deceived, right? Some of them are doing things they think are right, that, that they're serving God. Jesus is going to say later, you know, many will come to me that day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, we healed in your name, we did this in your name, and he said, depart from me, I never knew you. Paul said, these men who were made overseers were called by the Holy Spirit, listen, to shepherd the church he purchased with his blood. Now, when's the last time anybody in here saw a sheep or a shepherd? It's been ages, right? Just, we live in a technological society. We don't live in an agrarian society. We don't see it. It's still the best metaphor. It really is. And this idea of a shepherd goes back to Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me by green pastures and still waters, comforts my soul. And, you know, it's this beautiful imagery of a shepherd sheep analogy. And then in John 10, we'll look at that Sunday. Jesus talks about, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. And we don't want to get into all that now. We'll save it for Sunday. But some of the characteristics, right? See, anybody outwardly can look the part, just like anyone can look the part of a Christian. That's what Jesus is going through here. Wolves can wear sheep's clothing. You see it all the time. Jesus said, you'll know them by, your, by their fruit. If you see a pack of sheep over there, they should be eating grass. If you see one sheep eating sheep, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Okay? Sheep eat grass, wolves eat sheep. That's what false teachers do. They don't care for the sheep, they eat sheep, they feed on them. They hawk you for money. They want the highest seats in the synagogue. They love hierarchy and structure. And again, look at church history, how this has played out. And of course, sheep are gullible. You know, sheep are loving. Sheep are sheep need a shepherd. So even when false people come along, you know, this is where discernment comes in. This is why we need to read the word of God. We have to be able to judge these things. We have to be able to look at fruit. Something in your spirit will go amiss when someone who is a false shepherd is around. Your radar goes up. Not methods. 
Does everybody understand that? Not methods. Like if we all stood on our head today, there's nothing wrong with that. The Holy Spirit would not convict you or give you red flags if we were all standing on our head in this Bible study. That's a method, okay? But if I was telling you to give all your money because that would prove your love for God, you should have radar go up like nobody's business. What do true shepherds look like? They smell like sheep. They're around the sheep. Jesus tabernacled with people. They care for the sheep. They lay their life down. When trouble comes, they don't flee like the hireling. One of the greatest lessons I ever received in ministry when I got to Calvary Chapel is the first pastor's conference I ever went to. It was in a rustic place up in Canandaigua, New York, on a lake there. We literally were staying in accommodations that are like my shed in my backyard. I'm not joking. And we were in this rustic amphitheater, and I'll never forget, after the first session, I was new, and I had never met Chuck Smith, who started Calvary Chapel, and uh, knew his voice, because his voice is legendary, and it's on the radio. And, and all I remember is falling in the line with the other men, and the line was quite long, and I was in the middle. And I'm waiting in line, I hear Chuck Smith's voice from the back. And he had fell in line where the line was, and we were all going into the chow hall. You have to understand why this moved me because I came from a movement where the rank and file would have gone to one dining hall and the leaders would have gone to another dining hall with a totally different menu. And it just spoke volumes to me that Chuck was just like everybody else. And he was a true shepherd and he smelled like sheep and he loved sheep. And he cared for sheep. And Paul warned the Ephesian elders with tears, ravenous wolves, ravenous. Care less about people, care less about lives, care less about taking people's money, destroying lives. Jude talks about them, they're clouds without rain. And you can go and read all these things. You'll know them by their fruits. Verse 16, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, they will be known. You know what's good about being me these days? I've been at this for 20 years. Seven years. 27 years, same place. If anybody has a question, you know what I always tell them? I'm at 500 Brandywine Drive. Most days, certainly on Sunday. I'm not running from anybody. I'm here. 27 years. There's fruit all around us. I raised four kids, grandkids. Same wife. Fruit. See, that's the beauty of longevity. Your fruit bears itself out. My mom told me this. I'll never forget it. It's one of the most important things she ever told me. I had two small children. She said, never say one word about anybody else's children until you raised a couple. <laughs> and I had people in this church 
that would pick up my kids and love my kids and saw something in them, and then I had people that would criticize them. You'll know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. point I wanted to make when I talked about my life, look, there's always the new kid on the block. There's always the shiny new ball, the new thing. Trees bear fruit. They, they, they last long is the idea. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say unto me that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Anyone afraid of that verse? Yeah, that's scary, right? I remember when I was a new Christian, there was this corny as all get out Christian movies. You think the ones today are cheesy? Oh my gosh, these people have bell bottoms and like it looks like something you can make on your computer today. But there was this one called The Thief in the Night. And I was a Christian for like three years and I saw a thief, on, uh, a thief in the night and I was terrified that I was lost and had to get saved again. And you, know, and you read verses like this and you're like, oh no, that's going to be me. Look, you who practice lawlessness. Does anyone here practice lawlessness? Right? You know, a doctor's not perfect. Doctors make mistakes. You know what they call the guy who graduates last in medical school? Doctor, right? <laughs> He's practicing medicine. He hasn't conquered it or figured it all out. We're all practicing, right? And we know the totality of Scripture, right? We're saved by grace through faith. It's not, it's not our works. It's a gift of God. Romans 8, what we've given to God, he's holding. The preponderance of Scripture is that we're his. And I try and tell people, well, look at all the fruit. And they're like, if his problem, I don't have any fruit. Okay, look, are you practicing lawlessness? I don't think anybody here is. He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about bad fruit. He's talking about bad trees. Therefore, now here's the conclusion. This is actually where we started. Remember week one? We read the end from the beginning. Therefore, whoever hears these saying of mine and does them, seems like 50%, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, the, they beat on the house, it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, 50%, will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, the wind blew, and great was the fall of that house. And, and you know what? Sometimes you have to read the Bible and not look at everything like it's salvation in heaven and hell. You know, when Jesus says enter the narrow gate, I really, I really do believe he's talking about eternal life and such, but... But he, he's saying the road to life. Sometimes, this is what I think little faith is. I think little faith are those people, and I can't comprehend it, who have what I would call saving faith, and it never goes beyond that. 
It never gets down into like who they marry and what they do for a career and following hard after God. It's like it's this saving faith and then, and then they almost live like Gentiles. And, and I think some of them are building a house on sand. I, I don't think Jesus is saying, you know, some of you are going to hear these words of mine. You're not going to put them in the practice. And, you know, the storms of life are going to come and great will be. I'm not, I don't think Jesus is saying, and you're going to go to hell. I think what he's saying is, you know, great will be that fall of that house. I had a guy who was one of my best friends. Radical testimony, saved, died young. And when they cleaned out his apartment, they found things in that apartment that you would not think a man of faith would have in an apartment. Do I believe that person's in heaven? Yes. Do I think he struggled in life? Yes. Do I think his house was built on a strong foundation? No. Now, look, our salvation is built on Christ. That's a sure foundation. But I think sometimes Jesus could be talking about life here. I think sometimes he's talking about the sum total of all the choices we make in life. And I think I share with you, you know, it's not as simple as the sand rock illustration because in Israel, most of the places where you would build homes are in Jerusalem and around the area of Judea. But some of the most beautiful verdant areas are when you go south around the Dead Sea where no one would ever build because the wadis are there and the rain comes and washes everything out. But if you, if you didn't understand that, you would say, let's go down to this lush and beautiful area and there would be no rock to build on. Some people live their lives like that. They, they, they make snap decisions about career and moving based on money and other things and not necessarily seeking first the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying here is, look, you know, there's trouble in life. Storms are coming for Christians and non-Christians. God is kind to the just and the unjust. That there is a choice, and it's everything to do with the inward. When was the last time you went over someone's house, brought them flowers, bought a new house, and said, can't wait. Take me on a tour. The first thing I want to see is the foundation. Show me the cinder block. Show me how this was built. Right? Never. Right? You, you want to go see all the cool things, the, the whirlpool, the jets, all the, the zero oven and all that cool stuff, right? And, and God doesn't force anyone, right? Everything's a choice. I set before you life or death, blessing or cursing. Choose life. This is the good life. This is the good path. A poverty of spirit, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness, seeking first the kingdom of God. Yeah, he's adding all those things, but, but where are we going? And what's God have us involved in? This is the blessed life. This is the good life. Living in community, for better or worse, working things out. Seeking God, you know, praying with one another, all on the same path, all moving in one place. This is what makes community real. This is what makes life real. We get to do it together. This is why this was the greatest sermon ever preached. Not pulled out of context. But from blessed are the poor in spirit to those building their house on the rock. There's this one congruent theme. That God longs to breathe new life. And give us new hearts and new minds, and it's Ezekiel's 
vision, you know, can these bones live? Yes, I will put a new heart and new flesh, and these bones can live. 